to stand for the reading of the gospel lesson in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem asking, where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For We observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people, Israel. And then Herod secretly called for the wise men, learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared, and then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and and when you have found him, bring me word so that I may also go and pay him homage. And when they had heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising, till it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering, the house, and they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they knelt down and paid him homage. And then opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever, the gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Mm-hmm. Once upon a time, there was an emperor. A guy loved flashy new clothes. I really loved them. And along came these two con men who told him that they had this, this amazing cloth. And they said it was so special that it was invisible to anybody who wasn't smart enough or good enough at their job to see. So the emperor thought, you know, that sounds like a pretty great way to see just who I can count on in my kingdom. And so he gave him a wheelbarrow full of cash to make him a new outfit. Of course, you know the story, right? The guys go home, they set up their looms, and they pretend to work really hard. Actually, they're just messing around. No cloth. They didn't have any special cloth. When they told him they'd finished, the emperor didn't want to see, seem dumb. And so he said, oh, wow, yeah, that looks fantastic. His advisors and everybody else in the court didn't want to look bad either, and so they all pretended to see it. Now, come parade day, the, the emperor strutted out in his new clothes, which was basically him lacking any appropriate attire. 
And of course, everybody in town, of course. They're scared, so they play along. They don't want to look stupid. And out of nowhere, you remember, right? The kid stands up. <clears throat> he's too young, or maybe, maybe he's just too honest. I don't know. He's too young to bother with all this stupid adult play acting, and he shouts out, he's not wearing anything. Now, of course, obviously this gets everybody to admit the truth, but the emperor is too embarrassed to own up to being duped, so he, he just keeps on going, right? Pretending that everything's fine. Now, my mom used to love to tell me that Hans Christian Andersen story. Or at least she loved telling it to me, usually after I'd said something that she thought was not that smart for me. You know, usually after I'd told her something, you know, a bit on Saturday Night Live or some joke from Steve Martin or something, and she'd roll her eyes with that whole put upon mom thing and, 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 and say, it's just like the emperor's new clothes. Yeah, I was thinking about that when I was reading our story for the Sunday following Epiphany, the, the, the coming of the Magi. It's the same text every year. But before these Magi show up, when we got Herod sitting there in his study, thinking about how much time he still has left, and about all the idiots he's been ruling for the past 40 years, they're suckers. I mean, he knows they're suckers. No question in his mind that he's smarter than the stupid sheep who look to him for answers. And, and really, smarter, smarter isn't even the word for it. Is, is genius here? Is that a word? He's not sure, but clearly, given his outsized place in the world, he thinks it ought to be. I mean, how else do you explain his actions, right? I mean, he sees himself sort of walking the paths of the greats, dining at the victor's table in Valhalla, eating grapes from the hands of adoring lickspittles and toadies. And so he offers his uh, manicured hand to have his ring kissed by a woman who falls all over herself to tell him that he may very well be God's most important, indeed God's most inspired creation. Dinner parties, they generally bore him after everybody has dutifully paid him homage. Everybody just sitting around a table with a bunch of people who after a while start elbowing each other sort of surreptitiously giving the slightest eye roll after the 38th instance of his use of the words I, me, or mine in the last four minutes. But see, that's the way of the world, isn't it? Outsized personalities have outsized egos, sometimes well-deserved and oftentimes not. In this case, He's pretty sure his is well-deserved. But he's had to har fight hard for a little respect. He fought for so many years as an unacknowledged political prodigy. But, but see, that's what you get when your old man's a leg-breaking Einstein himself. Old man. As, advan as he's advanced in, his, in years, Herod, you know, you'd think he'd be satisfied, right? There's got to come a time when you stop and you reflect on your life. What have you done? What have you failed to do? And you realize that maybe your time on the stage is coming to a close. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but you hear the distant ripples as 
Charon starts to paddle the boat across the river Styx to pick you up for your final journey. I mean, you know the whole thing's going to end, but you don't, you don't feel any peace, maybe. No, maybe no satisfaction. Because when you live your life by the principles that enough is never enough, when quitting time comes, it's hard to lay down your shovel and muster up any gratefulness for a life that, at least on the surface, anybody in their right mind would switch places with you for. But see, the other part of it is he's always had to put up with the haters and the doubters. You know, the sneering elites, the cynical smarty pants who are convinced that they know more than everybody else, and they've treated him his whole life like he's Johnny come lately, a social climber, an Arivist, if you travel in tonier circles. He'd heard all the whispers since he came to town. I mean, they said his pedigree was purchased. Herod's breeding was, if not scandalous, then at least it was questionable. See, they laughed at him when he tried to fit in with the old money, even when he wound up having more of it than most of them. He had two things going for him. He had a great deal of support from powerful patrons who were convinced that he'd be good for business. And he also had some rabidly partisan followers who were enthusiastic skullcrackers themselves. Now somehow he'd managed to dance a delicate dance to keep his grabby little vulgarian fingers on the levers of power. But while Herod might be called the great, at this point in his life, great feels to him like it had long ago hopped the night train to Tupelo, leaving him with a fairly shaky foundation. That's how the world must have looked to Herod when the contingent from the east showed up. And they had some pretty distressing news. Something about a baby being called king of the Jews? Now, I say distressing because to any ancient Near Eastern ruler, the thought that a rival to the throne might be born unwittingly beneath your nose, I mean, that was something that get, gave every sovereign a case of severe indigestion. So, I mean, that was bad enough, but to find out that somebody had already conferred the title of king of the Jews on a little kid that nobody had ever heard of before, that would have been panic-inducing to any self-aware dictator in Herod's shoes. See, the title in particular would have been especially galling to, to him, King of the Jews, because, see, as far as he was concerned, that title had already been conferred 30 years earlier when the Roman Senate voted to name Herod King of Judea. So when the Magi show up on his doorstep, Herod felt like he couldn't afford to be apathetic about it, right? But Roman support was the one thing that Herod thought he always could count on. He was smart. He cultivated that relationship. Early on, Herod, like every politician under Roman control, knew about choosing the right political patrons. His father, Antipater, he made a strategic decision that turned out to be, in the end, well, less than ideal. Antipater, Herod's father, supported Julius Caesar. 
who, you may recall, found himself on the wrong end of a rather sizable political controversy, one in which he was the bell of the assassination ball. Antipater's son Herod, meanwhile, knowing the perils of betting on the wrong political horse, he puts his life savings on Julius Caesar's adopted son, Octavian. Now, in the Roman Civil War that followed, you may remember from history class, Julius Caesar's, uh, that followed Jesus Caesar's assassination, Octavian ultimately wound up defeating his rivals, ascending to power as a new Caesar. Indeed, Octavian took the name Caesar Augustus. So Herod's political instincts have proved excellent, at least with respect to Rome. But he wasn't content to show his appreciation for Caesar's political patronage with you know, a subscription to the Jelly of the Month Club. No, indeed, Herod is a man of action, a vision, a, a, an architect, a builder. So he built stuff, like a lot of stuff. Herod, in his quest for prestige, constructed significant architectural projects to impress both his Roman patrons and his Jewish subjects. He built a summer palace on the beach and named it Caesarea Maritima, Caesar's home by the sea, right? And it's, obvious, it's obviously a clear attempt at brown-nosing Caesar Augustus. He, he also undertook a, a massive engineering project in 30 BCE, and he dredged up this deep-sea harbor and named it Sebastos, which is an ancient marvel involving breakwaters and volcanic ash concrete. Amazing stuff, but that wasn't enough. These, 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 these grand projects came at a cost. See, the labor itself, of course, is backbreaking, and Herod had to coerce his subjects into service, further alienating them. Now, recognizing the need to placate his Jewish subjects, Herod, he sets out on another building project. About 20 BCE, he transforms the Temple Mount into a spectacular showplace, doubling its size. So the temple, which had been built 530 years or thereabouts, 500 years earlier, after the return from Babylon, was a fairly utilitarian affair. But Herod, he thinks he's going to make everybody proud and he goes in for renovation on the temple. And it was big. I mean, it was huge. He, as I say, doubles the size of it. And he makes it into a spectacular show place. There, you know, it's got intricate scroll work in the, and stonework. It's got gold fixtures in the executive washroom. And, but this project, it was also spoiled by forced labor, Herod's ruthless reputation as a dictator, which all exacerbated tensions with the local population. So by the end of his life, when the Magi arrive around uh, 6 BCE or thereabouts, 
and they announce the king of the Jews, Herod is both a frustrated man and he's now very anxious. He's frustrated because in his view, he has significantly elevated the Jewish profile within the Roman Empire. How are they, how are they not, why are they not more grateful for that? Because this includes, you know, beautifully refurbished temple, sparkling with plenty of curb appeal. But he's anxious, knowing that the tenure of even the most powerful rulers can be perilously short if their public approval ratings fall below a certain point. So now the contrast between King Herod and the young King Jesus that the Magi are announcing is pretty striking. I mean, one is nearing the end of his reign, the other is just beginning his journey. One king constructs opulent monuments to Caesar, adorned with gold, and yet this grandeur never earns him the respect and the legitimacy he yearns for. The other, a newborn, lies in a humble setting, receiving gold from wise men guided by divine signs. Herod resides in regal luxury in the thriving metropolis of Jerusalem. Jesus begins his life relying on the generosity of visitors in a modest dwelling in Bethlehem. I mean, Herod has access to the most influential leader of the time, and arguably to that point in history of all time. Jesus, he's a mere infant who doesn't even have access to the local Red Roof Inn. See, what, what's truly ca uh, captivating in this narrative is the fact that Herod, who embodies power and influence, is deeply terrified of Jesus, who seems to be a, a, a in, in, seemingly insignificant child from you know, some obscure backwater. So despite all of his wealth and security, Herod wakes up the day after the Magi's departure, tasting only the bitter tang of fear and feeling the dread weight in his belly. And even as he acknowledges his advancing age, Herod desperately seeks something solid to cling to. Because his usual reliance on Caesar's support is, well, it's uncertain since Caesar is closing in on the end of his life. Not that much better off, actually, in the health department than Herod is. His relationship with his Jewish subjects, Herod's relationship with his Jewish subjects, is strained. Over 40 years, he's ruled them, and that really doesn't bring him any comfort. Amidst the turmoil, Herod realizes that if this newcomer is indeed king of the Jews, not only is his life, but his whole legacy at stake threatening to, 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 to dissolve into ashes. And so this story beckons us every year at this time of epiphany to consider Herod's dilemma. I mean, here's a guy endowed with immense power, wealth, status, and yet he is internally crumbling at the news of a child born in humble circumstances. 
it's an ironic reflection on how fear can ruin the day of even the mightiest, right? And as Herod's life shows, living in fear can force you into making bad decisions. The juxtaposition of Herod and Jesus is not merely a tale of power versus weakness or wealth versus poverty. It's, it, it, it digs deeper into the essence of authentic leadership, of authority. Herod, with his grandiose palaces, epitomizes a leadership style fixated on outward strength and intimidation. And yet, ironically, he's the one consumed by fear at the prospect of a newborn. It's as if he's jumped off the pages of Hans Christian Andersen himself, outwardly trying to appear majestic, but people who know him know it's his way of masking the gaping chasm of fear that lives in his soul. Now, in contrast, Jesus represents a different paradigm of kingship, right? His birth in a manger, devoid of anything the rest of the world might consider power or grandeur, It symbolizes a leadership grounded in love and service, sacrifice. His authority stems not from a fat investment portfolio or a phalanx of palace knuckle-draggers to keep the unwashed at bay, but from his willingness to stand naked before the whole machine that manufactures injustice faster than a Henry Ford assembly line. See, this story challenges us to reassess our perceptions of value and success. It asks us to stand against any system predicated on injustice, violence, and death. In a world that often equates power with visible wealth and popularity, the story of Herod and Jesus helps us to to clarify what God finds valuable. What God finds worth in. To find worth not in our possessions or our achievements, but in our willingness to trust that God is busy unveiling a new realm where everybody gets a seat around the table. See, we find our value in God's desire for us. God looks at us sees us and loves us. And God's not even looking at our new clothes. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.